Good morning Holy Spirit by Benny Hinn. It was three days before Christmas 1973. The sun was still rising on that cold, misty Toronto morning. Suddenly he was there. The Holy Spirit entered my room. He was as real to me that morning as the book you are holding in your hand it is to you. For the next eight hours I had an incredible experience with the Holy Spirit. It changed the course of my life. Tears of wonder and joy coursed down my cheeks as I opened the scriptures and he gave me the answers to my questions. It seemed that my room had been lifted into the hemisphere of heaven. And I wanted to stay there forever. I had just turned 21, and this visitation was the best birthday or Christmas present I had ever received. Just down the hall were my mother and dad. They would never possibly understand what was happening to their Benny. In fact, had they known what I was experiencing, it could have been the breaking point in a family that was already on the verge of shattering. For nearly two years since the day I gave my life to Jesus there was virtually no communication between my parents and me. It was horrible. As the son of an immigrant family from Israel, I had humiliated the household by breaking tradition. Nothing else in my life had been this devastating. In my room, however, it was pure joy. Yes, it was unspeakable. Yes, it was full of glory. If you had told me just 48 hours earlier what was about to happen to me, I would have said, no way. But from that very moment the Holy Spirit became alive in my life. He was no longer a distant third person of the Trinity. He was real. He had a personality. And now I want to share him with you. My friend, if you are ready to begin a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit that surpasses anything you ever dreamed possible, read on. If not, let me recommend that you close the covers of this book forever. That's right. Close the book. Because what I am about to share will transform your spiritual life. Suddenly it will happen to you. It may be while you're reading. Perhaps while you're praying. Or while you're driving to work. The Holy Spirit is going to respond to your invitation. He's going to become your closest friend, your guide, your comforter, your lifelong companion. And when you and he meet, you'll say, Benny. Let me tell you what the Spirit has been doing in my life. A short night in Pittsburgh a friend of mine, Jim Pointer, had asked me to go with him on a charter bus trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I had met Jim, a free Methodist minister, at the church I attended. The group was going to a meeting of a healing evangelist, Catherine Cullman. To be honest, I knew very little about her ministry. I'd seen her on television, and she totally turned me off. I thought she talked funny and looked a little strange. So I wasn't exactly filled with expectation. But Jim was my friend, and I didn't want to let him down. On the bus I said, Jim, you'll never know what a tough time I had with my father about this trip. You see, after my conversion, my parents had done everything in their power to keep me from attending church. And now a trip to Pittsburgh? It was almost out of the question, but they grudgingly gave their permission. We left Toronto on Thursday about mid-morning. And what should have been a seven-hour trip was slowed by a sudden snowstorm. We didn't arrive at our hotel until one o'clock in the morning. Then Jim said, Benny, we have to be up at five. Five this morning? I asked. What for? He told me that if we went outside the doors of the building by six o'clock, we'd never get a seat. Well, I just couldn't believe it. Who'd ever heard of standing in the freezing cold before sunrise to go to church? But he said that was what we were supposed to do. It was bitter cold. 
At five I got up and put on every bit of clothing I could find, boots, gloves, the works. I looked like an Eskimo. We arrived at the first Presbyterian church, downtown Pittsburgh, while it was still dark. But what shocked me was that hundreds of people were already there. And their doors wouldn't open for two more hours. Being small has some advantages. I began inching my way closer and closer to the doors and pulling Jim right behind me. There were even people sleeping on the front steps. A woman told me, they've been here all night. It's like this every week. As I stood there, I suddenly began to vibrate as if someone had gripped my body and begun to shake it. I thought for a moment that the bitter air had gotten to me. But I was dressed warmly, and I certainly didn't feel too cold. An uncontrollable shaking just came over me. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And it didn't stop. I was too embarrassed to tell Jim, but I could feel my very bones rattling. I felt it in my knees. In my mouth. What's happening to me? I wondered. Is this the power of God? I just didn't understand. Racing through the church by this time the doors were about to open, and the crowd pressed forward until I could hardly move. Still the vibrating wouldn't stop. Jim said, Benny, when those doors open, run just as fast as you can. Why? I asked. If you don't, they run right over you. He'd been there before and knew what to expect. Well, I never thought I'd be in a race going to church, but here I was. And when those doors opened, I took off like an Olympic sprinter. I passed everybody, old women, young men, all of them. In fact, I made it right to the front row and tried to sit down. An usher told me the first row was reserved. I learned later that Miss Cullman's staff handpicked the people who sat in the front row. She was so sensitive to the spirit that she wanted only positive, praying supporters right in front of her. With my severe stuttering problem, I knew it would be useless to argue with the usher. The second row was already filled, but Jim and I found a spot on row three. It would be another hour before the service began, so I took off my coat, my gloves, and my boots. As I relaxed, I realized I was shaking more than before. It just wouldn't stop. The vibrations were going through my arms and legs as if I were attached to some kind of a machine. The experience was foreign to me. To be honest, I was scared. As the organ played, all I could think about was the shaking in my body. It wasn't a sick feeling. It wasn't as if I were catching a cold or a virus. In fact, the longer it continued, the more beautiful it became. It was an unusual sensation that didn't really seem physical at all. At that moment, almost out of nowhere, Catherine Cullman appeared. In an instant, the atmosphere in that building became charged. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't feel anything around me. No voices. No heavenly angels singing. Nothing. All I knew was that I had been shaking for three hours. Then, as the singing began, I found myself doing something I never expected. I was on my feet. My hands were lifted, and tears streamed down my face as we sang, How great thou art! It was as if I had exploded. Never before had tears gushed from my eyes so quickly. Talk about ecstasy. It was a feeling of intense glory. I wasn't singing the way I normally sang in church. I sang with my entire being. And when we came to the words, Then sings my soul, my Saviour God, to thee, I literally sang it from my soul. I was so lost in the spirit of that song that it took a few moments for me to realize that my shaking had completely stopped. 
but the atmosphere of that service continued. I thought I had been totally raptured. I was worshipping beyond anything I had ever experienced. It was like coming face to face with pure spiritual truth. Whether anyone else felt it or not, I did. In my young Christian experience, God had touched my life, but never as he was touching me that day. Like a wave as I stood there, continuing to worship the Lord, I opened my eyes to look around because suddenly I felt a draft. And I didn't know where it was coming from. It was gentle and slow, like a breeze. I looked at the stained glass windows. But they were all closed. And they were much too high to allow such a draft. The unusual breeze I felt, however, was more like a wave. I felt it go down one arm and up the other. I actually felt it moving. What was happening? Could I ever have the courage to tell anyone what I felt? They would think I'd lost my mind. For what seemed like ten minutes, the waves of that wind continued to wash over me. And then I felt as if someone had wrapped my body in a pure blanket a blanket of warmth. Catherine began ministering to the people, but I was so lost in the spirit that it really didn't matter. The Lord was closer to me than he had ever been. I felt I needed to talk to the Lord, but all I could whisper was, Dear Jesus, please have mercy on me. I said it again, Jesus, please have mercy on me. I felt so unworthy. I felt like Isaiah when he entered the presence of the Lord. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isa. 6, 5. The same thing happened when people saw Christ. They immediately saw their own filth, their need of cleansing. That is what happened to me. It was as if a giant spotlight was beaming down on me. All I could see were my weaknesses, my faults, and my sins. Again and again I said, Dear Jesus, please have mercy on me. Then I heard a voice that I knew must be the Lord. It was ever so gentle, but it was unmistakable. He said to me, My mercy is abundant on you. My prayer life to that point was that of a normal, average Christian. But now I was not just talking to the Lord. He was talking to me. And oh, what a communion that was. Little did I realize that what was happening to me in the third row of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh was just a foretaste of what God had planned for the future. Those words rang on in my ears. My mercy is abundant on you. I sat down crying and sobbing. There was just nothing in my life to compare with what I felt. I was so filled and transformed by the Spirit that nothing else mattered. I didn't care if a nuclear bomb hit Pittsburgh and the whole world blew up. At that moment I felt, as the word describes it, peace. Which surpasses all understanding, Phil. 4, 7. Jim had told me about the miracles that took place in Miss Hullman's meetings. But I had no idea what I was about to witness in the next three hours. People who were deaf suddenly could hear. A woman got up out of her wheelchair. There were testimonies of healings for tumors, arthritis, headaches, and more. Even her severest critics have acknowledged the genuine healings that took place in her meetings. The service was long, but it seemed like a fleeting moment. Never in my life had I been so moved and touched by God's power. Why was she sobbing? As the service continued and I quietly prayed, everything stopped suddenly. I thought, please, Lord, don't ever let this meeting end. I looked up to see Catherine burying her head in her hands as she began to sob. 
She sobbed and sobbed so loudly that everything came to a standstill. The music stopped. The ushers fouls in their positions. Everyone had their eyes on her. And for the life of me I had no idea why she was sobbing. I'd never seen a minister do that before. What was she crying about? I was told later that she had never done anything like that before, and members of her staff remember it to this day. It continued for what seemed like two minutes. Then she thrust back her head. There she was, just a few feet in front of me. Her eyes were aflame. She was alive. In that instant she took on a boldness I had never seen in any person. She pointed her finger, straight out with enormous power and emotion even pain. If the devil himself had been there, she would have flicked him aside with just a tap. It was a moment of incredible dimension. Still sobbing, she looked out at the audience and said with such agony, please. She seemed to stretch out the word, please, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. She was begging. If you can imagine a mother pleading with the killer not to shoot her baby, it was like that. She begged and pleaded. Please, she sobbed, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Even now I can see her eyes. It was as if they were looking straight at me. And when she said it, you could have dropped a pin and heard it. I was afraid to breathe. I didn't move a muscle. I was holding on to the pew in front of me wondering what would happen next. Then she said, don't you understand? He's all I've got. I thought, what's she talking about? Then she continued her impassioned plea saying, please. Don't wound him. He's all I've got. Don't wound the one I love. I'll never forget those words. I can still remember the intensity of her breathing when she said them. In my church the pastor talked about the Holy Spirit. But not like this. His references had to do with the gifts or tongues or prophecy not. He's my closest, most personal, most intimate, most beloved friend. Catherine Cullman was telling me about a person that was more real than you or I then she pointed her long finger down at me and said with great clarity, he's more real than anything in this world. I've got to have it when she looked at me and uttered those words, something literally grabbed me on the inside. It really got to me. I cried and said, I've got to have this. Now, frankly, I thought that everyone in that service would feel exactly the same way. But God has a way of dealing with us as individuals and I believe that service was just for me. Please understand, as a rather new Christian I couldn't begin to comprehend what was happening in that service. But I could not deny the reality and the power I felt. And as the service came to a conclusion, I looked up at the woman evangelist and saw what seemed to be a mist around her and over her. At first I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. But there it was. And her face was shining like a light through that mist. I don't for one moment believe that God was trying to glorify Miss Cullman. But I do believe he used that service to reveal his power to me. When the service was dismissed, the crowd filed out, but I didn't want to move. I had come in racing, but now I just wanted to sit down and reflect on what had just happened. What I had felt in that building was something my personal life did not offer me. I knew that when I returned to my home, the persecution would continue. My own self-image was practically destroyed because of my speech impediment. Even when I was a child in Catholic schools, my stuttering left me isolated with almost no one to talk to. Even after I became a Christian, I made very few friends. How could I meet new people when I could hardly communicate? So I never wanted what I found in Pittsburgh to leave me. All I had in life was Jesus. And nothing else in life had much meaning. I had no real future. 
My family had practically turned their backs on me. Oh, I knew they loved me, but my decision to serve Christ had created a gulf that was exceedingly wide. I just sat there. After all, who wants to go to hell after they've been to heaven? But there was no choice. The bus was waiting and I had to go back. I paused at the back of the church for one last moment, thinking, what did she mean? What was she saying when she talked about the Holy Spirit? All the way back to Toronto I kept thinking, I don't know what she meant. I even asked a few people on the bus. They couldn't tell me because they did not understand either. Needless to say, when I arrived home, I was totally exhausted. What with lack of sleep, hours on the road, and a spiritual experience that was like an emotional roller coaster, my body was ready for a rest. But I could not sleep. My body was weary to the bone, but my spirit was still stirring like a never-ending series of volcanoes erupting inside me. Who is pulling me? As I lay on my bed, I felt as if someone was pulling me off the mattress and onto my knees. It was a strange sensation, but I felt it so strongly I couldn't resist. There I was, in the darkness of that room, on my knees. God wasn't through with me yet, and I responded to his leading. I knew what I wanted to say, but I didn't quite know how to ask for it. What I wanted was what that minister in Pittsburgh had. I thought, I want what Catherine Cullman's got. I wanted it with every atom and fiber within me. I hungered for what she was talking about even though I didn't understand it. Yes, I knew what I wanted to say but didn't know how to say it. So I decided to ask the only way I knew in my own simple words. I wanted to address the Holy Spirit, but I had never done that before. I thought, am I doing this right? After all, I'd never spoken to the Holy Spirit. I never thought he was a person to be addressed. I didn't know how to start the prayer, but I knew what was inside me. All I wanted was to know him the way she knew him. And here is what I prayed, Holy Spirit. Catherine Coleman says you are her friend. I slowly continued, I don't think I know you. Now, before today I thought I did. But after that meeting I realize I really don't. I don't think I know you. And then, like a child, with my hands raised, I asked, can I meet you? Can I really meet you? I wondered, is what I'm saying right? Should I be speaking to the Holy Spirit like this? Then I thought, if I'm honest in this, God will show me whether I'm right or wrong. If Catherine was wrong, I wanted to find out. After I spoke to the Holy Spirit, nothing seemed to happen. I began to question myself, is there really such an experience as meeting the Holy Spirit? Can it truly happen? My eyes were closed. Then, like a jolt of electricity, my body began to vibrate all over exactly as it had through the two hours I waited to get into the church. It was the same shaking I had felt for another hour once inside. It was back, and I thought, oh. It's happening again. But this time there were no crowds. No heavy clothes. I was just in my own warm room in my pajamas vibrating from my head to my toes. I was afraid to open my eyes. This time it was as if everything that happened in that service all rolled into one moment. I was shaking, but at the same time I again felt that warm blanket of God's power wrapped all around me. I felt as if I had been translated to heaven. Of course I wasn't, but I honestly don't believe heaven could be any greater than that. In fact, I thought, if I open my eyes, I'll either be in Pittsburgh or inside the pearly gates. Well, after a time, I did open my eyes 
And to my surprise I was right there in my same room. Same floor. Same pajamas. But I was still tingling with the power of God's spirit. When I finally dropped off to sleep that night, I still didn't realize what had begun in my life. The first words I spoke early, very early, the next morning I was wide awake. And I couldn't wait to talk to my newfound friend. Here were the first words out of my mouth, Good morning, Holy Spirit. At the very moment I spoke those words, the glorious atmosphere returned to my room. This time, though, I was not vibrating or shaking. All I felt was the wrapping of his presence. The second I said, Good morning, Holy Spirit, I knew he was present with me in the room. Not only was I filled with the Spirit that morning, I also received a fresh infilling every time I spent time in prayer. What I am talking about is beyond speaking in tongues. Yes, I did speak in a heavenly language, but it was much more than that. The Holy Spirit became real. He became my friend. He became my companion, my counselor. The first thing I did that morning was to open the Bible. I wanted to be sure. And as I opened the word, I knew he was there with me as if he was sitting down beside me. No, I did not see his face or his countenance. But I knew where he was. And I began to know his personality. From that moment on the Bible took on a whole new dimension. I would say, Holy Spirit, show it to me in the word. I wanted to know why he had come, and he led me to these words, we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, 1 Cor. 2.12. When I asked why he wanted to be my friend, he led me to the words of Paul, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, 2 Cor. 13.14. The Bible became alive. I had never really understood the impact of those words, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Zech. 4, 6. Over and over again, he confirmed in the word what he was doing in my life. For more than eight hours that first day, then day after day, I grew to know him more. My prayer life began to change. Now, I said, Holy Spirit, since you know the Father so well, would you help me pray? And when I began to pray, I came to the place where suddenly the Father was more real than he had ever been before. It was as if someone had opened a door and said, Here he is. My teacher, my guide the reality of the fatherhood of God became clearer than I had ever known. It was not by reading a book. Or following a formula, B, C it was just by asking the Holy Spirit to open the word to me. And he did. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Rome. 8.14-15. I began to comprehend everything Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He was my comforter, my teacher, my guide. I understood for the first time what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, follow me. Then one day he said, don't follow me because where I'm going you can't go. He told them, but the Holy Ghost, he will guide you. He will lead you on. What was he doing? Christ was giving them another leader. Another one to follow. My search of the scriptures went on day after day for weeks until all of my questions were answered. All that time I was getting to know the Holy Spirit better. And that communion has never stopped to this day. I realized he was right here with me. And my entire life has been transformed.
I believe yours will be too. Today as I arose, I said it again, Good morning, Holy Spirit. From Jaffa to the ends of the earth it was December 1952 in Jaffa, Israel. Clemence Hinn, about to give birth to her second child, was in the hospital, gazing out the window of her maternity room at a beautiful sight. The deep blue waters of the Mediterranean were stretched to infinity. But the heart of this small woman of Armenian descent was troubled. She was torn with bitterness, fear, and shame. Off in the distance she could see the black cluster of rocks in the sea, Andromeda's rocks. Greek legend holds that the maiden Andromeda was chained to one of them when Perseus flew down on his winged horse, slew the sea monster, and rescued her. Clements wanted someone somehow to swoop down and save her from another year of humiliation and disgrace. She was a devout Greek Orthodox woman, but she didn't know much about the Lord. In that humble hospital room, however, she tried to make a bargain with him. As she stood by the window, her eyes pierced the sky, and she spoke from her heart, God, I have only one request. If you'll give me a boy, I'll give him back to you. She repeated it again, please, Lord. If you'll give me a boy, I'll give him back to you. Jaffa six beautiful roses the first child born to Costandi and Clemens Hin was a lovely girl, named Rose. But in the stubborn culture of the Middle East and especially in the Hin ancestral tradition the firstborn should have been a son and heir. The family of Costandi, immigrants to Palestine from Greece, began to persecute Clemens for her failure to produce a boy. After all, they chided, all of your other sister-in-laws had boys. She was jeered at and mocked as, and she felt the embarrassment and shame in a marriage their parents had so carefully arranged. Her eyes were still moist that evening as she fell asleep. And during the night she had a dream she still recalls. I saw six roses six beautiful roses in my hand, she says. And I saw Jesus enter my room. He came to me and asked me for one of them. And I gave him one rose. As the dream continued, a short, Slim young man with dark hair she remembers every feature of his face came over to her and wrapped her in a warm cloth. When she awakened, she asked herself, what does this dream mean? What can it be? The next day, December the 3rd 1952, I was born. Our family was eventually to have six boys and two girls, but my mother never forgot her bargain with God. She later told me of her dream and that I was the rose she presented to Jesus. I was christened in the Greek Orthodox Church by the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Benedictus. In fact, during the ceremony he gave me his name. Being born in the Holy Land meant being born in an atmosphere where religion casts an inescapably wide shadow. At the age of two I was enrolled in a Catholic preschool and was formally trained by nuns and later monks for fourteen years. To me, Jaffa was a beautiful city. In fact, that is what the word itself means beautiful. Jaffa in Arabic, Joppa in Ancient Greek, or Yafo in Hebrew. In every language the meaning is the same. As a boy I loved hearing the stories of history that surrounded me. Jaffa was founded back before recorded time. It is mentioned as a Canaanite city in the tribute lists of Pharaoh Thutmose III in the 15th century before Christ, even before Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. And it is where the Phoenician king Hiram of Tyre unloaded cedar logs for King Solomon's temple. Though it was fascinating, history had not been kind to my birthplace. Jaffa was invaded, captured, destroyed, and rebuilt again and again. Simon the Maccabee, Vespasian, the Mamelukes, Napoleon, and Allenby have all claimed her. Only six years before I was born, 
Jiffa found herself in a new nation, the prophetic state of Israel. But the community itself was not Jewish. Mehim my father was the mayor of Jaffa during my childhood. He was a strong man, about six single quote two, 250 pounds, and a natural leader. He was strong in every way physically, mentally, and in will. His family came from Greece to Egypt before settling in Palestine. But being from somewhere else was common. The Jaffa of my childhood was truly an international city. Walking down Raziel Street into Tower Square that contains the Abdul Hamid Jubilee Clock Tower, the Stonewall Jail, and the Great Mosque, are built in 1810, I could hear locals conversing in French, Bulgarian, Arabic, Yiddish, and other languages. And in the kiosks and the penna cafes, I could sample Baklava, Zlobia, Falafel, Sum Sum, and dozens of other delights. So here I was, born in Israel, but not Jewish raised in an Arabic culture, but not of Arabic origin. Attending a Catholic school, but raised as a Greek Orthodox. Languages come easy in that part of the world. I thought everyone was supposed to speak three or four. Arabic was spoken in our home, but at school the Catholic sisters taught in French, except for the Old Testament, which was studied in ancient Hebrew. During my childhood, the hundred thousand people of Jaffa had become engulfed by the exploding Jewish population of Tel Aviv to the north. Today the metropolis has the official name of Tel Aviv Jaffa. Over 400,000 live in the area. Actually, Tel Aviv began as a Jewish experiment in 1909 when 60 families bought 32 acres of bare sand dunes just north of Jaffa and marched out to the site. They were tired of the cramped conditions and noisy Arab quarters where they lived. The expansion continued until Tel Aviv became Israel's largest city. Even though my father was not Jewish, the Israeli leaders trusted him. And they were happy to have someone in Jaffa who could relate to such an international community. We were proud of his circle of friends, which included many national leaders. He was asked to be an ambassador for Israel in foreign nations, but chose to stay in Jaffa. But there was very little time for the family. In fact, I can't really say that I knew my father then. It seemed he was always attending an official function or an important meeting. He wasn't a demonstrative person, just strict and he seldom showed any physical signs of affection. My mother, however, made up for that. Again, part of that was the culture. Men were men. We lived comfortably. Dad's position in government made it possible for us to have a home in the suburbs. It was a wonderful home that had a wall around it with glass along the top for security. My mother was a homemaker in every sense of the word. Raising that brood of little hymns was more than a full-time job. A Catholic cocoon as my education continued, I considered myself to be a Catholic. The process started very early. The preschool I attended was actually more like a convent. Mass was celebrated regularly. My parents didn't protest because a private Catholic school education was considered to be the best available. Weekdays I studied with the nuns, and on Sunday I went to the Greek Orthodox Church with mom and dad. But that was not considered a major problem in polyglot Jaffa. Loyalty to one particular church did not seem that important. Was I a Catholic? Absolutely. Catholicism was my prayer life. It occupied my time and attention five days a week. It became my mentality. I practically lived at the convent, and in that cocoon I become very detached from the world. I was also separated from the world in an unfortunate way. From earliest childhood I was afflicted with a severe stutter. 
The smallest amount of social pressure or nervousness triggered my stammering, and it was almost unbearable. I found it difficult to make friends. Some children made fun of me others just stayed away. I knew very little of world events only what my teachers wanted me to know. But I was an expert on the Catholic life. As the schooling continued, I attended the College de Fra College of Brothers and was taught by monks. Even as a small boy, I was extremely religious. I prayed and I prayed probably more than some Christians pray today. But all I knew how to pray was the Hail Mary, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and other prescribed prayers. Only rarely did I really talk to the Lord. When I had some specific request, I mentioned it. Otherwise my prayer life was all very organized. Very routine. The one maxim seemed to be, you should feel pain when you pray. And that was easy. There was practically nowhere to kneel except on the white Jerusalem rock that was everywhere. Most of the homes are made of it. And the schools I attended had no carpet, just plain white rock floors. I actually came to believe that if you didn't suffer with your supplication, the Lord wouldn't hear you, that suffering was the best way to gain God's favor. Even though virtually no spirituality accompanied the teaching, I still cherish the foundation I received in the Bible. I often think, how many kids are taught the Old Testament in Hebrew? And our field trips literally made God's word come to life. Once we traveled into the Negev where we stood next to the wells Abraham had dug and learned about him. That experience will stay with me forever. His robe was whiter than white several times in my life God has spoken to me in a vision. It happened only once during my years in Jaffa, when I was just a boy of eleven. I really believe it was at that moment that God began moving in my life. I can remember the vision as if it happened yesterday. I saw Jesus walk into my bedroom. He was wearing a robe that was whiter than white and a deep red mantle was draped over the robe. I saw his hair. I looked into his eyes. I saw the nail prints in his hands. I saw everything. You must understand that I did not know Jesus. I had not asked Christ to come into my heart. But the moment I saw him, I recognized him. I knew it was the Lord. When it happened, I was asleep, but suddenly my little body was caught up in an incredible sensation that could only be described as electric. It felt as if someone had plugged me into a wired socket. There was a numbness that felt like needles a million of them rushing through my body. And then the Lord stood before me while I was in a deep, deep sleep. He looked straight at me with the most beautiful eyes. He smiled, and his arms were open wide. I could feel his presence. It was marvelous and I'll never forget it. The Lord didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. And then he disappeared. Immediately I was wide awake. At the time I could scarcely understand what was happening, but it wasn't a dream. Those kinds of feelings don't happen in a dream. God allowed me to experience a vision that would create an indelible impression on my young life. As I awakened, the wondrous sensation was still there. I opened my eyes and looked all around, but this intense, powerful feeling was still in me. I felt totally paralyzed. I couldn't move a muscle. Not an eyelash. I was completely frozen there. Yet I was in control. This unusual feeling overtook me but didn't dominate me. In fact, I felt I could say, no, I don't want this, and the experience would have lifted. But I didn't say anything. While I lay there, awake, the feeling stayed with me, then slowly went away. In the morning I told my mother about the experience, and she still remembers her words. She said, 
you must be a saint, then. Things like that didn't happen to people in Jaffa, whether they were Catholic or Greek Orthodox. Of course, I was certainly no saint, but my mother believed that if Jesus came to me, he must be singling me out for a higher calling. While God was dealing with my life, other factors were at work that would forever change the future of our family. From Gaza to the Golden Heights living in Israel during the 60s, I could feel the escalating political tension. Arab raids into Israel occurred almost daily along the borders from Egypt to Jordan and Syria. And the Israeli army regularly retaliated with raids of their own. In May 1967 Israel and the three Arab countries all alerted their armed forces for a possible war. At Egypt's demand the United Nations troops left the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula. Then, on June 5, 1967, Israeli planes attacked airfields in Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. It was called the Six-Day War. In less than one week, the Israelis destroyed the Arab air forces almost completely. Israeli troops occupied the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, and Syria's Golan Heights. Suddenly, Israel controlled Arab territory totaling more than three times the area of Israel itself. I'll never forget the day, early in 1968, that my father gathered the family together and told us that he was making plans for us to emigrate. He said, please don't discuss it with anyone because there may be some problems with our exit visas. In the beginning, the plan was to move to Belgium. Father had some relatives there, and the thought of moving to a French-speaking country sounded exciting. After all, that was the language of my schooling. Then one evening an attaché from the Canadian Embassy came to our home and showed us a short movie on life in Canada. Toronto seemed like such a thriving city. Father had two brothers who lived there, but we doubted that they were financially qualified to be our official sponsor. The questions surrounding our leaving seemed to grow day by day. At one point my father told us we might not be ready to depart the country for five years. I bargained with God by that time we were all so anxious to leave that I got down on my knees on that Jerusalem rock and made a vow to God. Lord, I prayed, if you will get us out, I'll bring you the biggest jar of olive oil I can find. And I added, when we get to Toronto, I'll bring it to church and present it to you in thanksgiving. In my upbringing, bargaining with God wasn't unusual. And olive oil was a precious commodity. So I made the vow. Within weeks a young man from the Canadian Embassy called my father to say, Mr. Hin. We've worked everything out don't ask me how. All of your paperwork is in order, and you can leave whenever you're ready. It didn't take long. We sold almost all our possessions and prepared for a new life in North America. During those last days in the Holy Land, I had a keen sense that something great was about to happen. I knew I was leaving a special city, but I felt that the best was yet before me. It was from the harbor of the ancient city of Jopamija for that Jonah left. And the result was the salvation of Nineveh. And how many times had I climbed to the citadel, the high mount overlooking the harbor? Near the lighthouse is a Franciscan church built in 1654. Next to it is the site of the house of Simon the Tanner where the Apostle Peter stayed for some time and had a vision that changed the world. Hearing the voice of God telling him to receive Gentiles as well as Jews into the church, Peter responded, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Acts 10 34-35 from that very moment, 
the message of Christ was spread from Joppa to Caesarea and on to the ends of the earth touching all of humankind. As we drove down Hagana Road to the Lod Airport, I wondered, will I ever see this place again? I thought about those Catholic nuns who so lovingly had taught me. Had I seen their faces for the last time? Out of the plane window I took one last look down at Tel Aviv, a huge expanse of grey-white cubes. Behind me were miles of deep green-orange groves. The Judean hills gleamed faintly in the distance. And as we headed over the waters of the Mediterranean, I looked down and said one last goodbye to Jaffa. There was a lump in my throat. I was fourteen, and it was the only home I had ever known. I scream at the kiosk the Hin family arrival in Toronto in July 1968 was an unheralded event. And that's just the way my father wanted it. No welcoming committee met us. And he had no promise of a job. We arrived with the clothes on our backs, a few possessions in suitcases, and a little money from what we had sold in Jaffa. It was enough to get by for a short time. Our new life began in a rented apartment. What a shock to land suddenly in a foreign culture. I could stutter in several languages, but English was not one of them. One, two, three, was as far as it went. But Daddy had studied enough English to fill out a job application. And it worked. He accepted the challenge of becoming, of all things, an insurance salesman. I don't know whether it was the burden of having to raise a large family, or his natural confidence in dealing with people, but my dad became an immediate success in his newfound profession. And before too many months we moved into our own home. We were all so proud of it. Life changed rapidly for me. Instead of attending a private Catholic school, I went to a public high school George's Vanya Secondary School. And since most of the kids at school had part-time jobs, that's what I wanted to do. We lived in the North York section of Toronto, and not far from us the new Fayview Mall had opened. I applied at a little kiosk that sold hamburgers and ice cream. Even though I had no previous work experience, they hired me. And every day after school I headed there. One Saturday, though, I walked into a grocery store and asked the manager, where can I find the olive oil? I need the largest jug or container of it you have. Sure enough, he found a big one. The next day, I walked proudly into the Greek Orthodox Church and made good on my vow to God. I placed it at the front of the altar and quietly said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing us safely to our new home. My heart was as full as that jug of oil. At the kiosk I did my work. Because of my stutter, I didn't get into many conversations, but I did become a wizard packing the ice cream into those sugar cones. I worked with a fellow named Bob. Had Bob lost his mind? I'll never forget the day in 1970 when I came to work to find that Bob had done something quite strange. All over the walls of the little kiosk he had tacked little pieces of paper with scripture verses written on them. I thought he'd lost his mind. I knew he was a Christian he told me so. But wasn't this going a bit too far? I said to myself, why is he doing this? Is it for me? I probably know the Bible better than he does. Finally I asked him, what's the idea of all these pieces of paper? Instantly, he began to witness to me. I thought he would never quit and when it was over, I was determined to stay as far away from this crazy fellow as I could. For the longest time I tried to avoid him. But it was nearly impossible. After all, we had to work together. Over and over, he brought up the topic of religion. But it was more than that. He wanted to talk about being born again, 
a phrase that was not in my limited vocabulary nor in my view of scripture. Bob finally quit his job at the kiosk, but many of his friends were at my school. And for the next two years I did my best to avoid them. I thought, they're a bunch of weirdos. They looked weird. They talked weird. They were complete opposites of the nuns who had taught me. During my senior year at George's Vanya, for the second time in my life, I had an encounter with the Lord. He came into my room and visited me this time in the form of an unforgettable dream. In Jaffa when I was eleven, the vision of Jesus standing before me had left an indelible impression. But now, in Toronto, I was not caught up in the study of scripture. Oh, I still attended church. But what was about to happen to me came out of left field. It was totally unexpected, and I was stunned by the experience. Let me tell you exactly what happened in my bedroom that chilly night in February 1972. As the dream unfolded, I found myself descending a long, dark stairway. It was so steep I thought I would fall. And it was leading me into a deep, endless chasm. I was bound by a chain to a prisoner in front of me and a prisoner behind me. I was dressed in the clothing of a convict. There were chains on my feet and around my wrists. As far as I could see ahead of me and behind me there was a never-ending line of captives. Then, in the eerie haze of the dimly lit shaft, I saw dozens of small people moving around. They were like imps with strange shaped ears. I couldn't see their faces, and their forms were barely visible. But we were obviously being pulled down the stairway by them, like a herd of cattle to a slaughterhouse or even worse. Suddenly, appearing out of nowhere, was the angel of the Lord. Oh, it was a wondrous thing to behold. The heavenly being hovered just ahead of me, just a few steps away. Never in my life had I seen such a sight not even in a dream. A bright and beautiful angel in the midst of the dark, black hole. As I looked again, the angel motioned with his hand for me to come to him. Then he looked into my eyes and called me out. My eyes were riveted to his, and I began to walk toward him. Instantly those bonds fell off my hands and feet. I was no longer tied to my fellow prisoners. Hurriedly the angel led me through an open doorway, and the moment I walked into the light, the celestial being took me by the hand and dropped me on Don Mills Road right at the corner of George's Vanya School. He left me just inches from the wall of the school, right beside a window. In a second the angel was gone, and I woke up early and rushed off to school to study in the library before classes began. I could hardly blink as I sat there. Not even thinking about the dream, a small group of students walked over to my table. I recognized them immediately. They were the ones who had been pestering me with all of this Jesus talk. They asked me to join in their morning prayer meeting. The room was just off the library. I thought, well, I'll get them off my back. One little prayer meeting isn't going to hurt me. I said, all right, and they walked with me into the room. It was a small group, just twelve or fifteen kids and my chair was right in the middle. All of a sudden the entire group lifted their hands and began to pray in some funny foreign language. I didn't even close my eyes. I could hardly blink. Here were students 17, 18, 19 years old kids I had known in class praising God with unintelligible sounds. I had never heard of speaking in tongues, and I was dumbfounded. To think that here was Benny, in a public school, on public property sitting in the middle of a bunch of babbling fanatics. It was almost more than I could comprehend. I didn't pray. I just watched. What happened next was more than I could ever have imagined.
I was startled by a sudden urge to pray. But I really didn't know what to say. Hail Mary seemed inappropriate for what I was feeling. I had never been taught that sinner's prayer not in all of my religion classes. All I could remember of my encounters with the Jesus people was the phrase, you've got to meet Jesus. Those words seemed out of place to me because I thought I knew him. It was an awkward moment. No one was praying with me or even for me. Yet I was surrounded by the most intense spiritual atmosphere I had ever felt. Was I a sinner? I didn't think so. I was just a good little Catholic boy, who prayed every night and confessed sin whether I needed to or not. But at that moment I closed my eyes and said four words that changed my life forever. Right out loud I said, Lord Jesus, come back. I don't know why I said it, but that's all that would come out of my mouth. I repeated those words again and again. Lord Jesus, come back. Lord Jesus, come back. Did I think he had left my house or departed from my life? I really did not know. But the moment I uttered those words a feeling came over me it took me back to the numbness I felt at age 11. It was less intense, but I could feel the voltage of that same force. It went right through me. What I really felt, though, was that this surge of power was cleansing me instantly, from the inside out. I felt absolutely clean, immaculate, and pure. Suddenly I saw Jesus with my own eyes. It happened in a moment of time. There he was. Jesus. Five minutes to eight the students around me couldn't possibly know what was taking place in my life. They were all praying. Then, one by one, they began slipping out of the room and onto their classes. It was five minutes to eight o'clock in the morning. By this time I was just sitting there crying. I didn't know what to do or what to say. At the time I didn't understand it, but Jesus became as real to me as the floor beneath my feet. I didn't really pray, except for those four words. But I knew beyond any doubt that something extraordinary had happened that February morning. I was almost late for history. It was one of my favorite subjects. We were studying the Chinese Revolution. But I couldn't even hear the teacher. I don't remember anything that was said. The feeling that began that morning would not leave me. Every time I closed my eyes, there he was Jesus. And when I opened my eyes, he was still there. The picture of the Lord's face would not leave me. All day I was wiping the tears from my eyes. And the only thing I could say was, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. As I walked out of the door of the school and down the sidewalk to the corner, I looked at the window of the library. And the pieces began to fall into place. The angel. The dream. It all became real again. What was God trying to tell me? What was happening to Benny? Walked into my bedroom, and, as if magnetized, I was drawn to the big black Bible. It was the only Bible in our home. Mom and Dad didn't even have one. I had no idea where it came from, but it had been mine as long as I could remember. Either pages had hardly been turned since our arrival in Canada, but now I prayed, Lord, you've got to show me what has happened to me today. I opened the scripture and began to devour it like a starving man who has just been given a loaf of bread. The Holy Spirit became my teacher. I didn't know it at the time, but that's exactly what miraculously began to happen. You see, the kids at the prayer meeting didn't say, now here's what the Bible says. They didn't tell me anything. In fact, they had no idea what had transpired during the past 24 hours. And, of course, I didn't say a word to my parents. 
I began by reading the Gospels. I found myself saying out loud, Jesus, come into my heart. Please, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. In scripture after scripture I saw the plan of salvation unfolding. It was as if I had never read the Bible before. Oh, my friend, it was alive. The words bubbled forth from a spring, and I drank freely from it. Finally, at three or four o'clock in the morning, with a quiet peace that I had never known before, I fell asleep. The next day at school I sought out those fanatics and said, Hey, I'd like you to take me to your church. They told me about a weekly fellowship they attended and offered to take me just a couple of days later. That Thursday night I found myself in the catacombs. That's what they called it. The service was just like that morning prayer meeting at school people had their hands lifted, worshipping the Lord. This time, though, I joined right in. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, they sang over and over. I liked that song from the first time I heard it and loved it even more when I found out it was written by the pastor's wife, Myrtle Watson. Her husband, Merv, was the shepherd of this most unusual flock. The catacombs was not a typical church. The people who went there were just an exuberant throng of Christians that met every Thursday night in St. Paul's Cathedral, an Anglican church in downtown Toronto. These were Jesus movement days when the so-called hippies were getting saved faster than they could cut their hair. Come to think of it, I hadn't seen a barber's chair either in quite some time. I looked around. The place was packed with kids just like me. You should have seen it. They were jumping up and down, dancing and making a joyful noise before the Lord. It was hard for me to believe that a place like that really existed. But somehow, from that very first night, I felt I belonged. Go up there, at the conclusion of the meeting, Merv Watson said, I want all of you who would like to make a public confession of your sin to step forward. We are going to pray with you as you ask Christ to come into your heart. I began to shiver and shake. But I thought, I don't think I should go down there because I'm already saved. I knew the Lord took charge of my life at 5 minutes to 8 on Monday morning. And this was Thursday. You guessed it. Within seconds I found myself walking down the dial as fast as I could. I didn't quite know why I did it. But something inside was telling me, go up there. It was at that moment, at a charismatic service in an Anglican church, that this good little Catholic from a Greek Orthodox home made a public confession of his acceptance of Christ. Jesus, I said, I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. The Holy Land couldn't compare with this. How much better to be where Jesus was, than where he used to be. That night when I got home, I was so filled with the presence of the Lord, I decided to tell my mother what had happened. I didn't have the courage to tell my dad. Mama, I've got to share something with you, I whispered. I've been saved. In a flash, her jaw was set. She glared and said crisply, saved from what? Trust me, I said. You'll understand. On Friday morning and all during the day at school, at the kiosk, Everywhere I went, a picture kept flashing before me. I saw myself preaching. It was unthinkable, but I couldn't shake the image. I saw crowds of people. And there I was, wearing a suit, my hair all trimmed and neat, preaching up a storm. That day I found Bob, my weird friend who had once plastered the kiosk walls with scripture. I shared just a little about what had happened that week. And I told him that I even saw myself preaching. Bob. I said, all day long it's been like this. 
I can't shake the picture of me speaking in huge open-air rallies, in stadiums, in churches, in concert halls. Beginning to stutter, I told him, I see people, as far as the eye can see. I must be losing my mind. What do you think it means? There can only be one thing, he told me. God is preparing you for a great ministry. I think it's wonderful. I didn't get that kind of encouragement at home. Of course, I really couldn't tell them what the Lord was doing. The situation was dreadful. Humiliation and shame my entire family began to harass and ridicule me. It was horrible. I expected it from my father, but not my mother. When I was growing up, she had showed so much affection. So had my brothers and sisters. But now they treated me with disdain like an intruder who didn't belong. Tradition. Tradition. Says the song in Fiddler on the Roof. If an Easterner breaks tradition, he has committed an unpardonable sin. I doubt that the West will ever truly understand its seriousness. He brings humiliation upon his family. And that can't be forgiven. The family told me, Benny, you're ruining our family name. They pleaded with me not to dishonor their reputation. My father had been a mayor and he reminded me of it. The family name was at stake. Please understand me when I say this, but Greek Orthodox and people from other Eastern High Church orders are perhaps the most difficult people to bring to a personal Christianity. When I became a born-again Christian, it was actually shameful to them. Why? Because they believe they are the real Christians. And they have the historical documentation to prove it. They have been Christians longer than anyone else. But here is the problem, and I have been raised with it. Their faith is long on form, ritual, and dogma, but short on God's anointing. The power is missing. And as a result, they have virtually no comprehension of what it means to hear from the Lord or to be led by the Spirit. It became obvious that if I was to remain in my own home, I would have to close the door to conversations about Christ. Nothing, however, could dampen the fire of my newfound faith. I was like a glowing ember that never stopped burning. Early in the morning my big Bible was open. The Holy Spirit continued to reveal the Word. But that was not enough. Every night that I could escape the house, I was in a church service, youth fellowship, or prayer meeting. And on Thursday nights I was back at the catacombs. I can never erase from my memory the day I mentioned Jesus in our home. My father walked over to me and slapped my face. I felt the pain. No, it wasn't the Jerusalem rock this time. It was a different kind of pain. But the hurt I felt was for my family. I loved them so much and agonized for their salvation. Actually, it was my fault. My daddy had warned me, you mentioned the name of Jesus just once again, and you'll wish you hadn't. He snarled with hatred as he threatened to kick me out of the house. I began to tell my little sister, Mary, about the Lord. Somehow my dad found out about it, and his anger boiled over again. He forbade me to ever talk to her about spiritual things. Time for the psychiatrist even my brothers persecuted me. They called me every name under heaven and a few below the earth. It went on for such a long time. In my room I prayed, Lord, will it ever end? Will they ever come to know you? It got to the place where there wasn't a member of my family I could talk to. I didn't have to look up the definition of ostracized. They flew my grandmother over from Israel just to tell me I was crazy. You are an embarrassment to the family name, she said. Don't you understand the shame you're causing? My father made that an appointment for me to see a psychiatrist. 
evidently bad thought I had lost my mind. And what was the doctor's conclusion? Maybe your son is going through something. He'll come out of it. His next tactic was to get me a job that would keep me so busy that I wouldn't have time for this, Jesus. He went to one of his friends and said, I'd like for you to offer my son, Benny, a job. Daddy drove me to his place and waited in the car while I went in. The man was one of the rudest, roughest, most mean-spirited men I had ever encountered. It was obvious I couldn't work for such a person. I got back in the car and said, Father, I could never have him for a boss. I actually felt sorry for my dad that day. He was at the end of his rope. He said, Benny, what do you want me to do for you? Tell me what it is. I'll do anything you ask if you'll just please leave this Jesus of yours. Dad, I said, you can ask me anything you want, but I would die before I'd give up what I've found. It was an ugly scene. He turned from a friendly father into a sarcastic stranger. All he had to offer was another torrent of hate, another tongue lashing. For the next year nearly to my father and I had almost no communication. At the dinner table he wouldn't look at me. I was totally ignored. It finally became unbearable even to sit down and watch the evening news with my family. So what did I do? I stayed in my room. But looking back on it, I can see that the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. I spent hundreds of hours thousands alone with God. My Bible was always open. I prayed. I studied. I worshipped. I feasted on heavenly manner that I would need in the years to come. I must obey the Lord. Getting to church was a gigantic problem. How I longed to go, but my father said, absolutely not. Time and time again. In fact, those were practically the only conversations we had arguments about the house of the Lord. Easterners consider it unthinkable to disobey parents. But now I was nearly 21. And I vividly recall the night I summoned the boldness to tell my father, I'll obey you on anything you want, but on the matter of going to church I will not obey you. I must obey the Lord. He was stunned. You'd have thought someone had shot him. And he seemed to bristle even more. Out of respect, I did my best to be obedient. I'd ask him, can I go to the meeting tonight? He'd say no, and I would go to my room and pray, please, Lord, please change his mind. Then I'd go back downstairs and ask again. Can I go? No, he'd growl. And black up I'd go. Little by little, he began to give in. He knew it was a losing battle. The catacombs rented another building for services on Sunday, and I was right there. Bible studies were on Tuesday and Friday, and a youth meeting on Saturday night. These meetings became my whole life. In the two years after my conversion, my spiritual growth was like a rocket's moving into orbit. By the end of 1973 Merv and Murder Watson were inviting me to join them on the platform to help lead in worship and singing. But I couldn't speak in public. Jim Pointer, the spirit-filled free Methodist pastor, had seen me there. And one day he stopped by the kiosk at the mall just to talk about the things of the Lord. That's when he invited me to go with him to the Cullman meeting in Pittsburgh. My personal encounter with the Holy Spirit after that meeting was awesome. But it took a few days for me to realize the dimensions of God's revelation to me. About this same time I changed jobs. I accepted a position as a filing clerk for the Catholic School Board in Toronto. I'm sure they wondered about me at times. I had a smile on my face just thinking about what God was doing in my life. The minute my work was finished, 
I went home and rushed upstairs and just started talking to him. Oh, Holy Spirit, I'm so glad to be back here alone with you. Yes, he was always with me, but my bedroom became a very sacred, special place. Sometimes, when I wasn't working I stayed home all day just having a personal communion with him. What was I doing? Having fellowship. Fellowship with the Spirit. And when I wasn't at work or in my room, I tried to get to church. But I didn't tell anyone what was happening to me. When I left the house in the morning, he left with me. I actually felt someone beside me. On the bus I'd feel the urge to start talking with him, but I didn't want people to think I was crazy. Even at work, there were times when I whispered things to him. At lunch, he was my companion. But day after day, when I got home, I hopped up those stairs, locked the door to my room, and said, now we are alone. And my spiritual journey continued. Anointing in the car let me explain that many times I wasn't aware of his presence. I knew he was with me, but I became so accustomed to him that I did not feel the electricity of those special times. But other people felt it. Many times when my friends came to see me, they began weeping because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Once Jim Pointer called to say, I want to pick you up and take you to a Methodist church where I'm singing. You can sing with me if you'd like. I wasn't really a singer, but I helped him out once in a while. That afternoon I was once again lost in the anointing of God's Spirit. Then I heard Jim honking the horn. As I ran down the stairs and to the car, I actually felt the Lord's presence running with me. The moment I jumped into the front seat and shut the door, Jim began to weep. He began to sing that chorus, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! He turned to me and said, Benny, I can feel the Holy Spirit in this car. Of course his presence is in this car, I said. Where else would it be? To me it had become the norm. But Jim could hardly drive. He continued to weep before the Lord. Once, my mother was cleaning the hallway while I was in my room talking with the Holy Spirit. When I came out, she was thrown right back. Something had knocked her against the wall. I said, what's wrong with you, Mama? She answered, I don't know. Well, the presence of the Lord almost knocked her down. My brothers will tell you of the times they came near me and didn't know what was happening but they felt something unusual. As time went on I lost my desire just to go out with the young people at church to have fun. I just wanted to be with the Lord. So often I said, Lord, I'd rather have this than anything the world can offer. They could have their games, their entertainment, their football I just didn't need it. What I want is what I have right now, I told the Lord. Whatever it is, don't let it quit. I began to understand more fully Paul's desire for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Henry, Mary, Sammy, and Willie now, even members of my family were asking questions. The Spirit of the Lord so permeated our home, that my brothers and sisters began to develop a spiritual hunger. One by one, they came to me and began to ask questions. They'd say, Benny, I've been watching you. This Jesus is real, isn't he? My sister Mary gave her heart to the Lord. And within the next few months my little brother Sammy got saved. Then came Willie. All I could do was to shout, Hallelujah! It was happening and I had not even begun to preach. By this time my father was nearly ready for an asylum. Was he losing his whole family to this Jesus? He didn't know how to handle it. But there was no question that my mom and dad could see the transformation that had already taken place in me, in two of my brothers, and in Mary.
When I first gave my life to the Lord, I had some wonderful encounters with Him. But these were nothing compared with my daily walk with the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord really visited my room. The glory would fill that place. Some days I'd be on my knees worshipping the Lord for eight, nine, or ten hours straight. The year of 1974 unleashed a never-ending flow of God's power on my life. I'd just say, Good morning, Holy Spirit, and it would start all over again. The glory of the Lord stayed with me. One day in April I thought, there must be a reason for it. I asked, Lord, why are you doing all of this for me? I knew that God doesn't give people spiritual picnics forever. Then as I began to pray, here is what God revealed to me. I saw someone standing in front of me. He was totally in flames, moving uncontrollably. His feet were not touching the ground. The mouth of this being was opening and closing like what the word describes as gnashing of teeth. At that moment the Lord spoke to me in an audible voice. He said, Preach the gospel. My response, of course, was, But Lord, I can't talk. Two nights later the Lord gave me a second dream. I saw an angel. He had a chain in his hand, attached to a door that seemed to fill the whole heaven. He pulled it open, and there were people as far as the eye could see. Souls. They were all moving toward a large, deep valley and the valley was a roaring inferno of fire. It was frightening. I saw thousands of people falling into that fire. Those on the front lines were trying to fight it, but the crush of humanity behind them pushed them into the flames. Again, the Lord spoke to me. Very clearly he said, if you do not preach, everyone who falls will be your responsibility. I knew instantly that everything that happened in my life was for one purpose to preach the gospel. It happened in Oshoya the fellowship continued. The glory continued. The presence of the Lord did not depart. It actually intensified. The word became more real. My prayer life became more powerful. Finally, in November 1974 I couldn't avoid the subject any longer. I said to the Lord, I will preach the gospel on one condition, that you will be with me in every service. And then I reminded him, Lord, you know that I can't talk. I worried continually about my speech problem and the fact that I was going to embarrass myself. It was impossible, however, to erase from my mind the picture of a burning man and the sound of the Lord saying, if you do not preach, everyone who falls will be your responsibility. I thought, I must begin to preach. But wouldn't passing out little tracts be good enough? Then one afternoon, the first week of December, I was sitting in the home of Stan and Shirley Phillips in Oshawa, about 30 miles east of Toronto. Can I tell you something? I asked. Never before had I felt led to tell anyone the full story about my experiences, dreams, and visions. For nearly three hours, I poured out my heart about things only the Lord and I knew about. Before I had finished, Stanley stopped me and said, Benny, tonight you must come to our church and share this. They had a fellowship called Shiloh about a hundred people at the Trinity Assembly of God in Oshawa. I wish you could have seen me. My hair was down to my shoulders, and I hadn't dressed for church because the invitation had been totally unexpected. But on December the 7th 1974, Stan introduced me to the group, and for the first time in my life I stood behind a pulpit to preach. The instant I opened my mouth, I felt something touch my tongue and loosen it. It felt like a little numbness, and I began to proclaim God's word with absolute fluency. Here's what was amazing. God didn't heal me when I was sitting in the audience. 
He didn't heal me when I was walking up to the platform. He didn't heal me when I stood behind the pulpit. God performed the miracle when I opened my mouth. When my tongue loosened, I said, that's it. The stuttering was gone. All of it. And it has never returned. Now my parents didn't know I was healed because we had so little communication around the house. And, of course, there had always been times when I could speak without a noticeable problem for a short time before something set the stuttering off again. But I knew I was healed. And my ministry began to mushroom. It seemed as if every day I was invited to a church or fellowship group to minister. I felt in the perfect center of God's will. I'm going to die for the next five months I was a preacher, but my mother and father had no inkling. Keeping it quiet for so long was a miracle in itself. My brothers knew, but they didn't dare tell dad because they knew it would be the end of Benny. In the Toronto Star in April 1975, a newspaper ad with my picture in it appeared. I was preaching at a little Pentecostal church on the west side of town, and the pastor wanted to attract some visitors. It worked. Costandi and Clemens saw the ad. I was sitting on the platform that Sunday night. During the song service I looked up and could hardly believe my eyes. There were my mother and my father being ushered to a seat just a few rows in front of the platform. I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. My good friend Jim Pointer was seated on the platform next to me. I turned to him and said, pray, Jim. Pray. He was shocked when I told him mother and dad were there. A thousand thoughts flashed through my mind, not the least of which was, Lord, I'll know I'm really healed if I don't stutter tonight. I can't remember another time that I was so nervous during a service and anxiety always made me stutter. As I began to preach, the power of God's presence began to flow through me, but I couldn't bring myself to look in the direction of my parents not even for a fleeting glance. All I knew was that my concern about stuttering was needless. When God healed me, the healing was permanent. Toward the end of the service I began praying for those who needed a healing. Oh, the power of God filled that place. As the meeting was ending, my parents got up and walked out the back door. After the service I said to Jim, you've got to pray. Do you realize that in the next few hours my destiny will be decided? I may have to sleep at your house tonight. That night I drove aimlessly around Toronto. I wanted to wait until at least two in the morning to get home. By that time I knew my parents would be in bed. I really didn't want to face them. But more about that later. Person to person re you ready to meet the Holy Spirit intimately and personally? Do you want to hear his voice? Are you prepared to know him as a person? Uh, that's exactly what happened to me, and it drastically transformed my life. It was an intensely personal experience, and it was based on God's word. You may ask, was it the result of a systematic Bible study? No, it happened when I invited the Holy Spirit to be my personal friend. To be my constant guide. To take me by the hand and lead me into all truth. What he will uncover and reveal to you in scripture will make your study of the Bible come alive. What I am about to share with you began the moment the Holy Spirit entered my room in December 1973, and it has never stopped. Here is the only difference. I know him infinitely better today than I did when we first met. Let's start with the basics. The Holy Spirit changed my life. He was with me from the moment I asked Christ to come into my heart and became born again. Then came the time when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was filled with the Spirit. I spoke in tongues. 
he imparted his presence and his gifts. So many Christians have received that same experience and stop right there. They fail to realize that what happened at Pentecost was only one of the gifts of the Spirit. But what I want you to know is this, beyond salvation, beyond being baptized in water, beyond the infilling of the Spirit, that third person of the Trinity is waiting for you to meet him personally. He yearns for a lifelong relationship. And that is what you are about to discover. If you had dialed my telephone number two years ago and we got acquainted by phone and if we had continued our conversations but had never met, what would you really know about me? You say, I know the sound of your voice as it comes through the phone. And that would be just about it. You wouldn't recognize me if you saw me on the street. But then the day comes when we meet face to face. All of a sudden you reach out to shake my hand. You see what I look like, the color of my hair and eyes, what kind of clothes I wear. Perhaps we go out for a meal, and you learn whether I like coffee or tea. You learn volumes about people when you meet them in person. End of the struggle when the Holy Spirit and I met, that is what began to happen. I began to discover things about his personality that changed me as a Christian. Salvation transformed me as a person. But the Spirit had a tremendous effect on my Christian walk. As I began to know the Holy Spirit, I became sensitive to him and learned what grieves him and what pleases him. What he likes, what he doesn't like. What gets him angry and what makes him happy. I came to understand that the Bible itself was written by the Holy Spirit. He used men from all walks of life, but every one of them was led by the Spirit. For so long I struggled to understand the Bible. Then came the day that I looked up and said, Wonderful Holy Spirit. Would you please tell me what you mean by this? And he spoke. He revealed the word to me. The Lord used a Catherine Cullman meeting to prepare me for what was about to happen. But never once did Miss Cullman sit with me and tell me about the Holy Spirit. Everything I learned was from him. And that's why it's fresh, why it's new, and why it's mine. When I returned home from that meeting in Pittsburgh, I fell to my knees. I was honest and transparent when I said, Precious Holy Spirit, I want to know you. I will never forget how nervous I was. But from that day I have grown to know him like a brother. Truly, he is a member of the family. You ask, who is the Holy Spirit? I want you to know he is the most beautiful, most precious, loveliest person on the earth. God the Son is not on the earth. They are both in heaven this very second. Who is on earth? God the Holy Spirit. For God the Father came to do his work through the Son who was resurrected. When God the Son departed, God the Holy Spirit came, and he is still here doing his work. Think about it. When God the Son left, he would not even take John and Peter with him. He said, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. John 13:33. But when God the Holy Spirit leaves, which many believe is going to happen very soon, he's going to take the redeemed of the Lord with him. It is called the rapture. We will be caught up with him to meet the Lord in the air. Who is this Holy Spirit? I thought at one time he was like a vapor, something floating around that I could never really know. I learned that he is not only real, but that he has a personality. What's on the inside? What makes me a person? Is it my physical body? I think not. I'm sure you have been to a funeral and have seen a body lying in a casket. Are you looking at a person? No. You are looking at a dead body. 
you must realize that what makes a person is not the body. Instead, the person is what comes out of the body. Emotions, will, intellect, feelings. These are just a few of the characteristics that make you a person and give you a personality. People who watch me preach are not looking at Benny Hinn. They are only seeing my body. I am inside my physical body. It is the person inside who is important. The Holy Spirit is a person. And just like you, he can feel, perceive, and respond. He gets hurt. He has the ability to love and the ability to hate. He speaks, and he has his own will. But exactly who is he? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God the Father and the Spirit of God the Son. He is the power of the Godhead the power of the Trinity. What is his job? The task of the Spirit is to bring into being the commandment of the Father and the performance of the Son. To understand the job of the Holy Spirit we need to understand the work of the Father and the Son. God the Father is the one who gives the command. He has always been the one who says, let there be. From the beginning, it has been God who gives the orders. On the other hand, it is God the Son who performs the commands of the Father. When God the Father said, let there be light, God the Son came and performed it. Then, God the Holy Spirit brought the light. Let me illustrate it this way. If I asked you, please turn on the light, three forces would be involved. First, I would be the one who gave the command. Second, you would be the one who walks to the switch and flips it. In other words, you are the performer of the command. But finally, who brings on the light? It is not me, and it is not you. It is the power of the electricity that produces light. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. He is the power of the Father and of the Son. He is the one who brings into action the performance of the Son. Yet he is a person. He has emotions which are expressed in a way unique among the Trinity. I've been asked, Benny, aren't you forgetting the importance of Christ in all of this? Never. How could I forget the one who loved and died for me? But some people are so focused on the Son that they forget the Father the one who loved them and sent his Son. I cannot forget the Father nor the Son. But I cannot be in touch with the Father and the Son without the Holy Spirit. See if. 2.18. During one of my first encounters with the Holy Spirit I had an experience that moved me to tears. Just as simply as I am talking to you, I asked him, what am I supposed to do with you? Would you please tell me what you're like? Honestly, I was like a little child trying to learn. And I felt that he would not be angry with my honest questions. The fellowship meeting hears the answer the Holy Spirit gave, I am the one who fellowships with you. And like the snap of a finger, that verse flashed before me, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, 2 Cor. 13-14. I thought, that's it. The Holy Spirit is the one who communes, who fellowships with me. Then I asked, how can I fellowship with you, but not with the Son? And he responded, that is exactly as it should be. I am here to help you in your prayers to the Father. And I am here to help you pray to the Son. Immediately, my entire approach to prayer changed. It was as if I had been handed a golden key that unlocked the gates of heaven. From that moment on, I had a personal friend who helped me speak to the Father in Jesus' name. He literally guided me to my knees and made it easy to communicate with the Father. What a fellowship. That is what the Holy Spirit longs for your fellowship. Let me explain. There are no requests or petitions in fellowship as there are in prayer. If I asked, would you please bring me some food? 
that's a request. But fellowship is much more personal. How are you today? Let's have breakfast together. That's fellowship. Remember, there are no selfish requests in fellowship just friendship, love, and communion. That's how it was with me. I began to wait for the Holy Spirit before I prayed. I would say, Precious Holy Spirit, would you now come and help me to pray? The Bible says, Likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, Rome. A26-27. When we don't know what to say he comes to our aid. And here is the next principle I learned. The Holy Spirit is the only teacher of the Bible. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, one core. 2.12-13. From my first encounter with the Holy Spirit, I began to know that he was the great teacher the one who would lead me into all truth. That is why I asked him, would you please tell me what this scripture means? But I still wanted to know, who are you? And why are you so different? I would say, I'd like to know what you are like. Gentle yet powerful here is what I saw. What he revealed to me was a mighty person and a childlike person at the same time. He said to me, when you hurt a child he will stay away from you. When you love a child, he will be very close to you. And that is how I began to approach him. I felt that he was gentle, and yet he is mighty and powerful. Like a child, however, he wants to stay ever so close to those who love him. Have you ever seen a little boy or a little girl tugging at mother's skirt or father's trousers? Wherever the parents go, the kids hang on and follow them. It's a sure sign that the kids are loved and cared for. That's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. He stays close to those who love him. How was it possible that the great evangelist Charles Finney could preach the gospel and people would be slain under the power, confessing their sins? What was the power that fell when John Wesley stood on the tombstones and opened his mouth to preach? It was the person of the Holy Spirit that accompanied their ministry. In New York City, Catherine Cudman had just finished preaching at a full gospel businessmen's convention. She was taken through the kitchen to an elevator to avoid the crowd. The cooks had no idea meeting was going on and had never heard of Miss Cullman. In their white hats and aprons, the cooks didn't even know she was walking by, and the next thing you know they were flat on the floor. Why? Catherine didn't pray for them. She just walked. What happened? When she left the meeting it seemed as though the power of his presence attended her. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the power of the Lord. That power became most evident to me when I began praying in my room all alone. 